Well, I've done the calculations, people, and I was in the park 12 times in September with Tin Pan. This is Central Park. You're listening to the Escape from Society podcast. All alone, nobody but me. I swear that rocking chair is not gonna get me. But when I get low, I get high. The 12 times we played there, certainly the most of any month so far this year. Pretty consistently out there, three to four days a week throughout the month. Had weather cooperating with us, basically. One day, I think we were rained out. One day, a little head cold got in the way and we canceled because our singer was under the weather. But basically, we got out there and did our thing. I played trombone and guitar probably in about equal, probably about five gigs on each of those instruments and a couple more on tuba. So I moved around within the band, which is kind of interesting sonically. The way the band positions itself is the tuba or bass goes on the far left, the guitar, then the trumpet in the middle, and the extra horn, whether the trombone or saxophone, on the far right. So if I'm playing trombone, I'm on the far right. I don't hear the bass that well. If I'm playing guitar, I'm right in front of the bass. I hear it very well. If I'm playing the tuba, I'm pretty distant from the other horn, but right behind the guitar, so I hear that well. If I'm playing guitar or trombone, I'm next to Jesse, so for background singing purposes, I'm right next to him. But there are some some versions of the band where I'm playing trombone and whoever's playing bass is uh, the other... We have, you know, the background singing sort of together. And it's very actually hard to hear the bass player sing in those instances. A little bit easier if bass and guitar are both singing together. But I guess what I'm driving at is that it's been a unique experience not only to play the different instruments within the band and have to uh, keep track of the role of of each different musician and different instrument. But it actually sounds different to me each day because I'm in a different physical relation to the band, to the rest of the band. And that's kind of interesting. It's also, if there were probably, you know, on 12 gigs in a month, there were probably four different bass players, maybe three different guitar players. Day to day, especially the, the combination in the rhythm section between the tuba and the guitar, day to day it uh, can really sound quite different based on the rhythmic approach and the timbral approach of the different players. So it's funny that we go out there and do the same basic set of tunes. In three sets, we usually don't repeat anything. So that would mean we'd probably do 25, 
to 30 songs a day. And some of them can be quite different based on who's in the band. And there are a few people who come to listen fairly often. There's this one guy who shows up nearly every day and sometimes claims that he's like off to work or he's on break from work. But he'll come and like smoke pot and hang out in the park and listen to us for an hour at a time. And then just like ride off on his bike somewhere else. I don't know if he's really on break from work. Seems like that type of guy would not be employed. We also had a celebrity chef come by one day. I already don't even remember his name. I don't understand the celebrity chef phenomenon, really. If they don't have a TV show, and, I mean, maybe they all have TV shows. If they don't have a TV show, and they just have, like, a restaurant in one city, or maybe a restaurant in a couple of different cities, and the restaurant's really expensive, nobody's actually ever had their food. You know, except for like rich people who happen to live or vacation in those cities. And so if you've never had the food, you've never seen the guy on TV, why would you start following him on Instagram? But anyways, this one particular celebrity chef passed us in the park one day and took a short 10 second video or something of us and put it on Instagram. And he has 70,000 followers or something. And I'm wondering just like, who, who are those 70,000 people? Do they care about this guy or his food? Or does he post interesting things? Maybe he's, well, I, I have no idea. I did watch the videos, a little snippet of the song Comes Love. And while we were still in the park, my sister texted me because a friend of hers had seen the video. And although she doesn't know me personally, she knows me from pictures with my sister. Recognized me. Told my sister that she thought she saw me in this video and why don't you check it out. And she checked it out and yes, it was us. Sent it to me. Another guy who I went to college with and haven't seen in five years, he sent me a message and said, Hey, I saw this video of you. Kind of strange. Earlier this summer, I don't know if I mentioned, there was a video. These sailors came by one day, these three sailors and sailors, you know, kind of classic white sailor outfits with the uh, funny little blue neckerchief. And they strutted past us a couple of times with cameras and then were gone. And that wound up being a video for the musical On the Town, which is being revived on Broadway. And they were like the three lead actors from On the Town. And there was a little sort of promotional video made where they're just scrolling around different sites in New York and singing the song New York, New York, it's a hell of a town, blah, 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 which I would, I would have no idea that that song exists if it wasn't for The Simpsons, which Barton Milhouse had that great 
uh, Springfield, Springfield. It's a hell of a... I could sing you all the words, no problem. Um, Tin Pan is in that little promotional video with the sailors walking by us for half a second, maybe, and we're in the background, and people, a couple of people watched it and recognized me and told me they saw me. Also, I was kind of surprised at that. Um, that later that day, like about five minutes later, three nuns walked by us and their outfits were like sort of the inverse of the sailors. They were like, you know, navy blue with a little bit of white trim instead of the other way around. And I was like, ladies, I have these three guys that you absolutely have to meet. They were just here. So there were some good days and some slow days from a money perspective. It doesn't necessarily seem to have anything to do with the way the band sounds on a particular day, although I, I have noticed that if money is coming in, we tend to get a little more excited and play a little bit better. If money's not coming in, we might actually choose to play stuff that we don't know very well or that we're still learning. And so there might be there might be five minutes of us sort of hacking our way through a song that may not even sound very good because we're just working on it. And so that that tends to happen on the slow days. But something something else about watching people tip and watching people buy CDs is it really does appear to be contagious. Giving is contagious, you hear that, right? And on those days when a little crowd starts to develop and a couple of those people in the crowd buy CDs, then a couple more will buy CDs and then more people will gather around and then more people will give little donations and more people will buy CDs. On the day, you know, the difference one day to the next of the number of people in Central Park and what they're doing there may not be very different. There might be 3,000 people that walk past us every day. It's just that on some days, 200 of those people stop for 20 minutes at a time and buy CDs, you know. It's hard to, it's hard to say that any of that is under our control, but I guess the more we do it, the more we learn, but I, I don't know. I mean, if it was, if it was that simple, we could all go out and make a thousand dollars every day, but that just doesn't happen. Um, so there are forces beyond our control, but we had a good month playing some music. I did some Tin Pan gigs also not in Central Park. There's a restaurant in Williamsburg called Fada, a French place. And Tin Pan used to play there very regularly, like almost every Friday night, I think. And I did that a few times. And maybe out of the blue, Jesse heard from the restaurateur, again with the restaurateurs, right? That, you know, hey, can you guys come play on a Saturday night? So we played on a Saturday night. It was just me on tuba. Jesse and a guitarist who's also local to the Williamsburg area um, had a great time. Nice meal, some good drinks. Nice. Um, I like the the trio setting, especially in a restaurant where it's a little bit more relaxed. You know, the band stretches out a little bit more when we're not trying to be attention-getting. 
That's the real difference between Tin Pan in the park and Tin Pan in a restaurant or a club. That uh, we don't need to get anyone's attention when we're already in a room with them. So the band relaxes a little bit, stretches things out. One final note about that the tweet or the Instagram post by the celebrity chef. I mean, I did have those people say, hey, you're on Instagram on this video. Doesn't appear to have led to any gigs. That's the thing about that type of um, social media presence is it doesn't necessarily add up to anything. There wasn't really any way for us to monetize that other than to make sure our name was posted there and tagged and then see if maybe somebody would somehow hire us for a gig which in that case didn't happen but is the sort of thing that does happen it's just it's just sort of a free-for-all out there anyway so those tin pan gigs were fine and there was a whole big weekend up in boston where Tin Pan was playing the late night blues dance following an earlier dance by the Gordon Webster band. So when we played, I guess when Gordon Webster played in Montreal last and I was there, that was uh, what the 4th of July, I think. There were some postcards at that dance studio advertising the Dirty Water, Lindy, and Blues Festival in Boston on this weekend, Saturday, September 27th, etc. And I saw that Gordon was playing and that Tin Pan was playing, and I said to uh, both Jesse and Gordon, hey, I'd love to be on the gig that weekend. I don't know if you've put the bands together yet, but... Um, It'd be nice for me to do it because, you know, I got this family up there in the Boston area. Uh, However, it was conflicting with one of the weddings I was invited to this summer. You know, one of the like eight or so weddings that I was invited to. And uh, so I asked, you know, are you playing on Friday night? Are you playing on Sunday or whatever? No, both gigs were on Saturday, which was the day of the wedding. So... It wasn't necessarily going to be worth it for me to go play the gig, miss a wedding, which, you know, I like going to weddings. Uh, um, but if, if I got hired by both bands, I'd make some good money. And I also had this idea that maybe my uncle would sit in on drums with Tin Pan and it would be very meaningful for me to play with him. Uh, and I figured probably meaningful for my uncle as well. So that's that was my ideal. It's like, all right, I'll definitely go do the music if we can play with Uncle Dave and I can get hired by both bands. It'll be good money. It's, it's going to be worth missing the wedding for that. And for a long time, it looked like that wasn't going to be the case, that I was only doing the Tin Pan set and we were going to do it without drums because there wasn't really enough money to bring on a fifth guy you know I hemmed and hawed couldn't make up my mind and then my girlfriend's grandmother ended up scheduling a 90th birthday party in Ohio for that weekend 
And so my girlfriend decided to go to that. So that sort of swung things back into the, well, I don't have my date to go to the wedding anyways, so maybe I should do the, the gig. And what ended up happening was basically in my favor, which is that um, there was some sort of misunderstanding with someone in Gordon's band, so he wound up needing me to play with him that night anyways. So there you go. I got the back-to-back gigs that I wanted, and then Jesse suggested that playing with Uncle Dave would be really fun, and, you know, we could maybe find a little bit of money between us to hire him for the Tin Pan gig. So, bam! The whole thing that I wanted to happen when I first thought about it back in July um, wound up happening. So, I was pretty pleased. Went up to Boston for the weekend, actually had a jam session with my uncle and a couple of guys on Saturday afternoon. That went well. Um, Doing some, you know, outside stuff, improvised stuff. Drove up to Winchester, to the Winchester Town Hall, played three sets with uh, Gordon Webster's band, which included a front line with two saxophone slash clarinet players named Dan L. So that was cool, hanging with the Dan L's. And when we got off stage, I hopped in the car, drove back to Newton, where my uncle lives, picked him up, and we went into Cambridge and met Tin Pan for the uh, late night gig that was part of the same swing dance festival. So this was billed that it was going to start at like 1.15. And since everybody was coming from the other gig, you know, Jesse was on the gig with Gordon's band. We were using Cassidy on bass for, for both bands. Uh, so everybody was coming from this other gig. Most of the dancers were coming from this other gig. So we didn't get started playing in Cambridge until closer to two o'clock. And um, Gordon sat in with us, so it was actually like a six-piece edition of Tin Pan with drums, piano, electric guitar, bass, trumpet, and trombone. So, and and according to the um, you know scope of the gig, doing sort of the bluesier versions of songs, nothing that up tempo. A lot of stuff that was pretty slow, slinky, fun to dance to, get nice and close. Um, and we played two sets. We played till about four o'clock. People were still dancing. We'd been playing basically since eight o'clock. They'd been, or since nine o'clock. They'd been dancing since nine o'clock. Maybe since even before that. I have no idea. But it was a pretty fun gig. Um, And I guess that gives me a a little extra opportunity to talk about my Uncle Dave, who's been a big musical influence on me um, for the stuff that he's done as a musician and also just for his taste in music and the stuff that he's turned me on to over the years. We used to make each other um, mixtapes when I was a teenager and you know the stuff I was putting on mixtapes for him 
probably didn't interest him that much at all. You know, like Weezer and probably Ben Folds 5 and stuff like that that I was into at the time that, like, I can't imagine he was that interested in. But he gave me all sorts of stuff that I loved. A band he was in called Speedball Baby. And then all kinds of stuff that he dubbed from his extensive um, record collection of 70s free jazz. So Art Ensemble of Chicago I learned about. And um, my first time hearing George Lewis, the trombone player, on this Barry Altschul record. So I got into Barry Altschul and to George Lewis and Ronald Shannon Jackson. And then some older stuff too, like this incredible... um, record called Live the Three Deuces by Bill Harris and Charlie Ventura which I found out through Uncle Dave and it's just like a great swing sort of like in between swing and bebop eras there were all these guys sort of left over from the swing era from like the Woody Harmon Benny Goodman scene that were doing not exactly old swing stuff but definitely not bebop, but like some somewhere a little bit in between, like a more modernized swing for the late 40s, stuff like that. And the first um, gigs that I ever sat in on in like bars were also when I was a teenager and uh, my uncle's band, The Roys, would play like on um, Thanksgiving Eve out at the Midway Cafe in Jamaica Plain outside of Boston, which is still there. And uh, I haven't played it, but several, uh, you know, indie musician touring friends of mine have played the Midway. Um, So I'd go on Halloween Eve and like, you know, sit in on a couple of tunes with the Roy's. My first uh, recording session was on a Roy's record in probably 1997 or 8. So yeah, Uncle Dave's done a bunch of cool stuff and hipped me to a lot of cool stuff over the years. And we usually get to jam together a little bit when I'm visiting Boston, but it's, uh, I don't think ever come to pass that we were like actually on a gig together the way we were um, on this Tin Pan gig together. So that was, uh, that was really nice. And this little jam session we had in the afternoon might lead to a recording in the future because that was a nice little quartet. of other musical experiences during the month to share with you. One simply was the uh, People's Climate March, which took place in New York City and involved 
apparently over 300,000 people. It was sort of incredible. And I had planned with um, this fairly dormant demonstration, parade, protest, whatever you want, activist band um, called the New York Path to Peace. The guy, the older gentleman, Charlie Kyle, who originally put that band together, he lives in Connecticut and sort of sent out some feelers to see if there was anybody who wanted to do something during the People's Climate March. And a few of us were free and said, yeah, we'd love to be a part of this. And Charlie was not was not really prepared to do any marching, which was all right with me. The thing about going to march with your trombone or your tenor saxophone or whatever sort of mid-sized instrument you might have, if you bring a case, then either someone else has to carry your case the whole parade or you have to carry it while playing which is uncomfortable and looks dumb and you know unless you have somewhere to leave it in which case you're going to have to make a a whole circuit back to the starting point with your horn anyways i mean there's it's not really a good system so charlie because he was um in you know he had some surgery recently or something and um, he said, let's just uh, hang out in Bryant Park and play there, sort of spread the message around that park, and then when the march comes by, we can either disperse and people can join the march or we can do whatever. He was just going to come down to Connecticut, from Connecticut for a few hours. And the train situation got screwed up and there were only a few people going to be involved anyways, so we on the on the morning of we bagged it but i went anyways because my friend kyle who you know is the um, he plays in escape from society uh he was going there and we could at least be a little two-person uh, pep band uh if need be so i grabbed a couple of percussion instruments and you know a tambourine and a shaker and stuff and Kyle brought his uh, cornet which he doesn't really know how to play and I'm no good at playing but at least I know how to play it so as much as my lip permitted I was playing the cornet and and he would play the tambourine and sometimes we'd just do little shaker and tambourine things but we met a little before noon up on 72nd Street and the parade had already started from Columbus Circle, which is 59th Street. And it took three hours for us to get to 59th Street. So that just should give you a sense of scale. This massive parade that took, um, you know, what is that? 13 blocks took you know, three hours to get through because there were so many people ahead of us and the entire parade route for two miles was totally full of people. Anyways, it was good to um, express some joy and also alarm as uh, I think the main 
message of that march is that there are a lot of people who are ready to band together, and that is a positive thing. But the fact of the matter is, we're banding together because something very extreme is happening. And if you want to hear, if you're not a longtime listener to this podcast and you want to hear some stuff about climate change, there's an there's an episode of the podcast, like about episode 13 or 14 or something. It's a long interview um, with Cynthia Hopkins where I, I talked to her about climate change, which she had just made a big theater piece about. So some concepts there for you to uh, refer to if you never heard that episode. Now, aside from all of the swinging swing music and fun tin pan and uh, Gordon and dancing and parking and blah, 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 all this uh, sort of outdoor music, I was lucky enough to have uh, at least one Escape from Society thing this month, a solo Escape from Society show, uh, part of a house concert series called Z Couch, which was started by some friends of mine who live in New York or have lived in New York in the past. And it rotates from one apartment to the next. About once monthly, there's a, a performance in the series, usually about three performers, soloists or little duos, and, you know, some food and drink, and it's just a, an evening hang. I've played at Z Couch once before, several years ago. Amy Weiss and I did a, a concert of lullabies, violin and bass trombone, sort of improvised arrangements of lullabies from this lullaby book that I had for some reason. And on this occasion, I just wanted to do some Escape from Society stuff, so I brought my guitar and my bass trombone over to Sean Ali's house. Sean plays bass and lives in Woodside. So it was a short bike ride, which I didn't mind uh, schlepping both instruments on the bike. And I played third of three for a full living room. So full living room is like 15 to 20 people. But that's a, that's a nice audience right there. There was a solo saxophone and bass clarinet performance that I liked quite a bit and then there was like a participatory act where some percussion instruments were handed out and there was also some sort of collaboratively written poetry so after that everybody was like kind of feeling together on the same page and I did what I like to do in a solo set which is play a few songs on the guitar play an improvisation on the trombone, play a few more songs on the guitar, do the trombone, do a few more on the guitar. Um, So probably for about 40 minutes, I went back and forth like this. And I did some songs from the Escape from Society record. For the last little suite I was going to do, I um, 
actually hadn't taken the time to introduce the concept of Escape from Society and what the songs were that I was doing and how I had gotten these poems in an interesting way and what song poems are and so forth. And there were a few people who uh, in the audience who were like, oh, song poems, like Jimmy Carter says yes. And I had just taken the time a few days earlier to learn all the words from the uh, little speech in the middle of Jimmy Carter says yes. So I was able to whip that out on the spot and play that, which was good. And um, I think one of my trombone improvisations led into the peanut vendor, which I have a little solo trombone arrangement of. But in general, I kept the trombone stuff very abstract and the songs very just kind of, uh, you know, acoustic guitar, living room kind of thing. Just uh, very direct and very quiet. I did this workshop um, earlier in the summer. It was a it was a, a workshop in immersive performance. And somebody just kind of threw a ticket my way and I went spur of the moment. And so maybe 10 people who were there, we, we did all these little exercises um, guided by uh, someone who makes immersive theater pieces. And so some of these were like theater games along the lines of theater games I've seen before. But the one that I found to be most effective was pairing off, devising little um, physical gestures, sort of like hand dances almost. It was, uh, I don't need to tell you how they were derived and created, but everybody had this little hand motion of their own that uh, we were performing for our partners in our little groups of two. The first instruction was just to do it for each other. The second was to do it for your partner while staring him in the eye and not breaking eye contact. The laser stare the whole time. Thirdly, we were to do it without making any contact, eye contact at all. We also did it sort of coming into the space, making eye contact, and then doing the action without any subsequent eye contact. We did the reverse of that, come into the space, don't make any eye contact, do your action, make eye contact at the end, after you finished. And another one maybe that was staring at the same spot the whole time, but at a spot sort of above your partner's head or off in the distance to the side or whatever. So it was it was really amazing to notice both as an observer, you know, as the audience and as the performer, how each of these different ways of focusing changed the effect of the little performance. Some of them were a little bit awkward. Some of them were, were comfortable, but not really engaging. 
Some of them were very engaging. The one um, that I found to be the most successful, and again, we're dealing with just a one-on-one situation, which is not exactly like performance, was the come into the room, make eye contact, then do your thing and be done with it. And so this solo uh, living room show was maybe the first opportunity that I've had since that workshop to try and approximate and put into practice what I, uh, what I gained from that workshop. So I actually did my best to make eye contact with the people in the room, feel very present with them during maybe my first song. And then from there, really sort of go back into my own world. And um, in particular, when I was playing the trombone, just eyes closed the whole time, no question about it. But also during the uh, guitar songs, maybe some eyes closed, maybe some just looking at my fingers. And um, and the, so the performance went very well, and I don't know how much this uh, approach influenced that, but it's, um, it's very nice to think about how and when you, you look people in the eye and what that can mean for the way they're going to be affected by your music, your performance. Jimmy Carter says yes. Jimmy Carter says yes. The person who gave me the uh, ticket to that workshop is Cesar Alvarez, who you remember from earlier this summer as the composer of The Universe is a Small Hat, which we did those two nights performing the music from this small hat show at Joe's Pub and then a night at the Silent Barn doing sort of a play test of it. The new iteration of The Universe is a Small Hat is taking place on 14th Street where Baby Castles, which is this video game collective that has developed over the years, actually has a gallery space. It's right next to the Y between 6th and 7th Avenues on 14th Street in Manhattan. So they have this, they have the second and third floor, this gallery space, and Cesar is able to use it for the rest of this year to rehearse and produce little play tests of the universe is a small hat, which is still a work in progress. I won't tell you really anything about it right now, other than it is a participatory theater piece. It takes place a hundred years in the future on a spaceship, and there is a little band there. The very first playtest at Baby Castles happened right at the end of September, and there will be eight more for the rest of the year. So if this is the kind of thing that interests you, you can look it up and uh, come to something which you might really enjoy. I didn't really enjoy the first one. There are many things about the show still being developed and in the case of this first show, still being built and decided right up until the time we started. So although I'd been there for three and a half hours by the time the piece started, 
I hadn't had a chance to clear my head, organize my music or my mind or anything, and the the whole experience was a little bit frazzling. Not to mention the fact that there were some people in the audience, some participants, who sort of wanted to hijack the show at one point and managed to do so in a way that other performers weren't really prepared to deal with in a um, in a way that made for effective theater. It just kind of felt uncomfortable. But anyways, the small hat is is on. It's going. You'll hear more about it in um, the next three episodes of the podcast. by talking about the only other gig that I had this month, which was organized by Jordan McLean, who you were introduced to sometime early in the spring. I talked about Jordan. Jordan, of course, noteworthy for founding the Afrobeat group Antibalas and for doing work on the Fela musical, both arranging and uh, playing in the band there. And so the Festival of New Trumpet, which has got to be about 10 years old, because 10 years ago when I got to New York, my roommate Peter was involved in what I feel like was the first font, um, Festival of New Trumpet font um, festival. And it's, um, you know, it's sort of a couple weeks long, different venues type of uh, thing. Dave Douglas is the main organizer, sort of chief of um, the festival. So there will be shows featuring trumpet players in different venues around the city for a couple of weeks every fall. And there are a few little awards and commissions that they give out. And Jordan, who is a trumpet player, was asked to put something together for a night that was kind of going to be the party night of the festival. Although it wasn't really just a party. I mean, it was, tickets were like 20 bucks, and it was at Littlefield, which is, I don't know, it doesn't really have a festive atmosphere. It's kind of cementy and dark in there, to be perfectly honest. But uh, that was the thing. And they, they got three pretty fun, pretty different kinds of brass-based party bands to play this so there was a Banda de los Muertos a band that plays regularly at, at Barbez has many horns and does like a Mexican Banda sort of thing they, they played first they were pretty awesome and then following them was this band that Jordan put together which involved a, a few of the people from the Fela band and a couple of other horn players from around town doing arrangements. One original tune of Jordan's and um, some Tony Allen and Fela tunes that were arranged 
for this. It was, let's see, tuba, two trombones, two trumpets, tenor saxophone, bass, drums, percussion. So that's missing guitar and keyboards from what a normal Afrobeat rhythm section would have, but has some extra horns to sort of make up for it. And Jordan, although he put the thing together, was not actually able to do the gig, so the saxophone player Morgan Price was mainly in charge. And we had one rehearsal for it. The stuff was pretty clear and well arranged, so it was easy enough to follow. But we were reading music, and it does a little bit come back to the white guys playing Afrobeat thing that I get turned off by a little bit. And it's not necessarily because dudes are white. I don't... I was just thinking about it, and that might not even really be the case. It's like, yes, it's Afrobeat, it's Afrocentric music, and the lyrics in many Fela songs are anti-colonialist, which are, in a sense, anti-white, but maybe more than that, they're just like black power. And I don't think whites are robbing anything by playing the music. I mean, it's music that I really like and I like to play, and that's um, totally fine. The thing about young white dudes and young white <laughs> young white black dudes young white dudes and young black dudes who are American is there's a very different American approach to specifically taking solos, taking horn solos from the approach of the Africa 70 band of Fela Kuti's. Um, and this might derive as much from James Brown as from jazz music, but in American music, the, the idea behind a solo is often one of sort of storytelling and creation and technical acuity and yeah, telling a story and, and being flashy or doing whatever, you know, making a real personal statement. That's true in funk music, it's true in jazz music. It When I listen to Afrobeat, the, the old stuff, the original stuff, solos don't really have that character, at least the way I hear them. They're much, there's a lot more stasis. There's the way a funk player takes a, a solo and and like lays into a riff and does a rhythmic thing. Like James Brown would say, you're, you're not holding a trombone, you're holding a drum. That thing is a drum. That, um, that sort of thing is a little less common in Afrobeat, where I hear the solos is, you know, more static, kind of meandering. You know, songs are, are 20 minutes long and it's, it's not like John Coltrane is taking a solo for 20 minutes. It's a, it's a much different thing. The ideas are sort of different. So when there's a band of like young white dudes playing Afrobeat in New York City, if it doesn't sound totally legit to me, that doesn't mean I don't think it sounds good. And that doesn't mean I think the problem is that the people are white. 
if it's a problem at all, maybe it's just a problem that like the mentality is different because we're on a different continent and part of a different generation. You know, it doesn't it's not a black white thing. I don't know, some musings there about Afrobeat fun music to play and so here we were playing it. Uh for not a ton of people who are not really dancing, but good rhythm section, good horn players, pretty good soloists and so forth. Great to play alongside my buddy Dave Smith. We were the trombone section together. I love playing with Dave. And the band that played after us was even bigger, and they were from Richmond, Virginia. I can't think of their name right now. They were they were like the brass-playing nerds version of heavy metal. I mean, the stuff they played was pretty heavy, pretty nerdy, kind of funky, kind of hip-hoppy, kind of second-liney. Pretty in your face, definitely, which if you're ready to have a lot of fun with that, you're going to have a lot of fun. If you've just gotten off stage and you're a little bit tired, like I was and like Dave was, you'll listen to five songs and then go ahead and hear some My voice is starting to give, folks. I apologize for that. Seems to be my cue to shut up. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. More to come. Talk to you later. But I will tell you, I'm together, I am black, we are together. It will shoot back at you. Watch out. It's a message. It's a beat. It's a rhythm. It's a message. It's African music. It's very good for you and me. You are relaxing when you are meditating, when you are smoking, when you are dancing. African music is good for you. Percussion. You can feel the percussion. Rhythm. <laughs>